Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the first annual Florida Frontiers Festival is being held Saturday, November 12th at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. We'll talk with festival headliner Ben Prestige. Well, I think a lot of people don't, they think of Florida and they think of uh, obviously like Disney World and beaches and stuff, but that's really not Florida culture and history, you know. That's people from other other places coming down and uh, doing that stuff. But yeah, there is a lot of culture here, a lot of Southern culture. We'll discuss the letter book of Governor John Milton, nearly lost in a fire. The letter book really is an incredible glimpse into the workings of the governor's office during uh, the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history, at least on U.S. soil. And we'll look at the history of the B-52 bomber in Orlando. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida Historical Society will host the first annual Florida Frontiers Festival on Saturday, November 12th at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Main stage performers include Florida blues man Ben Prestige, the Bethune-Cookman University Gospel Choir, Mariachi Nuevo Guadalajara, folk musician Bob Lusk, and singer-songwriter Chris Call. There will be selected vendors, including highwaymen artists, food trucks, a children's corridor, and demonstrators. The Heritage Stage will feature storytellers and theatrical presentations, including J.D. Sutton as naturalist William Bartram and the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble leading a Florida folk song sing-along. Inside the museum will be the opening of the new exhibit Stetson Kennedy's Multicultural Florida, celebrating what would have been the folklorist and author's 100th birthday. Kennedy is best known for his classic 1942 book, Palmetto Country, which documents the diverse cultural heritage of our state, from cracker cowmen to Seminole Indians to Greek sponge divers in Tarpon Springs to Latin cigar rollers in Ybor City to African-American turpentine industry workers and beyond. The Florida Frontiers Festival is an extension of this program, which airs on public radio stations throughout the state. Our public television series, Florida Frontiers, which is broadcast from Key West to the Panhandle, and our weekly article, Florida Frontiers, that appears in Florida Today newspaper and as a blog on our website. 
Like our other Florida Frontiers projects, the goal of the Florida Frontiers Festival is to educate the public about our state's rich history and diverse cultural heritage in an entertaining and accessible format. Festival headliner Ben Prestige is entertaining and accessible. He was born and raised in rural South Florida. It's uh, western Martin County. Yeah, it's in between Okeechobee and Indian Town. And uh, it was, uh, it's Martin Grade, is what everybody lived out there called it. It was also called Martin Highway or uh, 714. But it was a 14 mile long dirt road and uh, seven miles east of asphalt, seven miles west of asphalt. All cattle ranches and orange groves. And uh, the biggest ranch out there is Alapata Ranch, which uh, I believe in uh, Seminole Miksuki language means alligator. It's Alapata Ranch and uh, they subdivided uh, some of it up. I think some of it might still be ranches, uh, but most of it was bought by the state. It's like wildlife management area. so. It's really pretty out there. We used to fish out there when I was a kid. There's a, uh, it's called Cottage Pond, and I had a friend whose mom worked at the ranch out there, and, and some of the family worked at the ranch. And uh, she gave us the key to the gate, and we'd go fish out there at Cottage Pond. It was, just, it was probably between five and 10 acre lake out there. And it was loaded with bass, and nobody ever fished out there. So when we were kids, we'd go out there and fish. But now it was funny, because the state took it over, and they wanted to make it natural again, so they drained, that, they drained the lake. I went out there when they opened it up as wildlife management. I'm like, man, I'm gonna go out there and see if I can fish out there. And, uh, the lake's not even there anymore. It's just kind of like a little wet spot on the ground now. It's still beautiful out there. It's really nice though. It's still called Alapata. It's Alapata Wildlife Management Area, I believe is what it's called now. Primarily a blues musician, Prestige was influenced by that music at an early age. My dad was from Mississippi and stuff, and he listened to a lot of blues, so I grew up, I was really into like rural blues stuff and uh, slide guitar and stuff like that. And, and I started learning, I heard Roy Bookbinder one time, he's a Florida guy. And I heard him doing uh, fingerstyle one time at a concert when I was probably about 15 or something, 16. And I went there by myself. None of my friends wanted to go to a blues concert. And so I went by myself. And uh, I must have been 16 because, like I said, it made out there. And I uh, heard him doing fingerstyle. Man, I really loved it. I started finger picking, stuff like that. And then right around the same time, there's a neighbor out there. Um, I helped to build a chicken coop on his property. And uh, he had a banjo, and uh, we stopped to eat lunch, and I saw the banjo. I was like, cool, I asked him about it, and I saw him doing, doing some, uh, some bluegrass-style rolls and stuff. So I got some finger-style stuff off of him, too. And I got, that kind of got me into the old-time banjo stuff, too. Um, so I started picking up on the old bluegrassy and old-time music stuff from him. So, <laughs> so yeah, always, always like the old music more than any new stuff. <laughs> music runs in the Prestige family. Ben's great-grandmother was a professional musician as well, touring with Al Jolson. In the early 20th century, Jolson was known as the world's greatest entertainer. Yep, that was my, my mom's grandmother on, on my mom's, it was my mom's mom's mom uh, toured with him. She played trombone and uh, that was way back, I want to say like roaring 20s or turn of the century. And um, she, uh, she played trombone and uh, their shtick back then, what made them unique touring on the vaudeville circuit was uh, they were all girls band. They were the girls orchestra, which was like unheard of back then for like an all girl band on stage. So. I think there's about five or six of them. And uh, I never could find any recordings of them, but I got like a business, it's like, it looks like a postcard. It's one of their business cards. It has their old black and white picture on there and the address and stuff. It was really cool. I still got, my grandma gave me that uh, when she knew I was into music. So it's really cool. And my, in her, my, it was my mom's mom that gave me the card. She played piano too. She played, uh, which I didn't even realize she played. She had a piano in her house. And um, I was playing guitar one time and I was doing like a blues riff, just the blues together. And uh, she's like, oh, that's the same, uh, that's like the same bass line what I used to play when I was a kid, like boogie woogie, that's boogie woogie. And she got on the piano and played, but she had arthritis really bad, so she couldn't play long. But uh, she played a couple riffs, like this really cool boogie woogie stuff. It kind of blew my mind, you know. I was probably about 13 or something when she did that and I thought it was really cool. 
So she played too. And uh, my dad, you know, he, play, he played a couple chords on guitar. He kind of got me started with that. It's not like G, C, and D, but uh, he, didn't, he didn't play too much. Ben Prestige is truly a one-man band. If you weren't watching him play, you would think you were hearing a band. By himself, Prestige provides a bass line, percussion, guitar, and vocals. I played, um, started like with just guitar, fingerstyle guitar and stuff like that, and uh, I would always start my foot when I played, so you could hear thump, thump, thump. Um, there are some places, that, you know, because I had wood floors and stuff, but there are some places I play where you didn't hear the thump, it was like a concrete floor or something like that. So I ended up building a box, it like evolved over time. I built a little wooden box out of plywood, two by fours, and I put a microphone in that, and then I could stomp on that, and you could hear that, so that'd be like my backbeat. And, uh, and then from there, I ended up getting a bass drum, because it, it sounded a little cleaner got a bass drum and then added a hi-hat cymbal to it with my left foot so I got boom tap boom click boom click um, then from there I added the snare drum with a pedal and then I added a double snare drum pedal and then I added a tom so it like just evolved over time I just kept adding drums to it and um, I was a street performer I moved to uh, Memphis because I was really into blues and stuff I moved to Memphis because it's a big blues uh, scene up there and through Mississippi and stuff and I was a street performer out on Beale Street for a while and I had this little kit set up and um, and uh, yeah, from there, that's when my, my, my whole one-man band really started to evolve because I was trying to draw people over to the street, you know, on the high side of the street and make tips and whatever and sell CDs. And uh, while I was there, I lived in Memphis. My next door neighbor was a guy named John Lowe, L-O-W-E. And uh, he made these cigar box guitars, like diddly bows and stuff. And uh, I got a couple of the, uh, those instruments from him. And uh, it's a really unique instrument. The way, the way he, there's a bunch of guys doing cigar box guitars now. But uh, the way he made his was he had one bass guitar string and three guitar strings, and it was all fretless. And uh, there's two outputs, so the bass string goes to a bass guitar amp, and uh, the guitar strings go to a guitar amp, so it's in stereo when you play it. So with this like stereo instrument and then the drums going all at the same time, it really sounds like two or three people going. So, uh, and then when I started, it was really rough sounding, you know, but over, over time, I'm starting to get it together, you know what I mean? Starting to figure it out, so. <laughs> Ben Prestige was the headliner at this year's Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, along with Frank Thomas and Jim Stafford. Prestige will be headlining the upcoming Florida Frontiers Festival in Coco. He enjoys playing events that celebrate Florida history and culture. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't, they think of Florida and they think of, uh, obviously, like Disney World and beaches and stuff, but that's really not Florida culture and history, you know. That's people from other, other places coming down. Um, and uh, doing that stuff. But yeah, there is a lot of culture here, a lot of Southern culture, and um, just with food and music and stuff like that, that's unique to this part of the country. Um, you know, guys like Frank Thomas, man, really opened my eyes to that. Like there is like a certain style of Florida folk music that uh, 
I almost want to say it's like a subgenre of, of country or bluegrass or something. But uh, it's its own unique thing, and I love those songwriters like Frank Thomas that are that write about Florida and, and Florida history and Florida culture and things that go on here that don't go on in other parts of the country. You know what I mean? It's really cool, and this festival like embodies that whole thing with the music um, and the different subcultures that we have in Florida, whether it be like the Hispanic, uh, Cubano stuff coming out of Miami uh, to uh, the bluegrass stuff upstate in Florida, and um, it's just so much. I love the uh, the folk life stuff that they have here. The old cracker cowboys talking about their way of life, and the old catfish fishermen that are still running trot lines and stuff. You know what I mean? It's cool to see all that here. You can find it all in one park in one weekend. It's it's pretty awesome. Prestige says he enjoys listening to and performing music with a Florida focus. Oh, fishing and stuff. <laughs> fishing and living in Florida, that kind of stuff. I haven't really de uh, delved into like a lot of the history stuff yet, but I'm planning on that on, on my some of my next recordings and stuff. Definitely want to get more into that. Um, like I said, Frank Thomas really got me. He's like, you need to write more Florida songs. And I started listening to his albums. I'm like, man, I really do need to write some more stuff. But uh, I think he's a better songwriter than me. But uh, I'm working with my brother now, too. We're doing a duo. And uh, I explained the little one-man band thing that I do. But he also plays. He plays bass guitar and guitar. He'll switch off on those. And he has uh, harmonies, uh, vocals. And uh, he's got a, a drum kit that he plays, which is all the cymbals and uh, all the stuff that I can't play with my feet because I only have two feet. So now he's got two feet and he does the other side of the drum kit while he plays. And uh, we've been doing that and uh, I was talking to him about songwriting and then he just came came to me one day with just a notebook full of songs and he's like, check this out. I was like, he's a, he's a great songwriter. So our next couple albums, I'm really looking forward to getting those out and uh, we're gonna have a lot more Florida songs on there. I, I just think he's a much better lyricist than I am. So it's just gonna add a whole new dimension to the show. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, it's my brother John Prestige. <laughs> Today, blues and roots music must compete for attention with a wide variety of popular music styles, but Prestige believes the genre will always have a dedicated following. Oh, definitely. I feel like it's coming back too. I don't know if it's coming back or it's just always been there. Honestly, it's probably just always been there. Younger people are starting to pick up on it and do their own thing with it. Like there's bands now that have uh, They'll, do, they'll have banjo and fiddles in there, but they have like the punk influence. So it's like bluegrass, but just like, uh, just a little bit rougher. You know what I mean? Bluegrass is like always fast anyway. So they're just taking that fast element and they're kind of just shouting the lyrics instead of singing beautiful harmonies. You know what I mean? But it's doing the same same thing, you know, which I think is cool. Like the young people are still keeping that tradition alive. So there's definitely, there's definitely a group of people out there, young guys doing it. So <laughs> it's cool. I don't think it'll ever die in America. <laughs> Florida blues man Ben Prestige will headline the first annual Florida Frontiers Festival on Saturday, November 12th at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. Other main stage performers include the Bethune-Cookman University Gospel Choir, Mariachi Nuevo Guadalajara, folk musician Bob Lusk, and singer-songwriter Chris Call. There will be vendors including highwaymen artists, food trucks, a children's corridor, storytellers, and more. Inside the museum will be the opening of the new exhibit, Stetson Kennedy's Multicultural Florida. More information is available online at floridafrontiersfestival.com. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch archived editions of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. A house fire in the early 20th century nearly consumed some important historical documents. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here the letter book of Governor John Milton. Yeah, that's right. Uh, governor Milton was the fifth governor of the state of Florida, which had only been admitted to the Union in 1845. He was elected in 1860, was inaugurated in October of 1861, and served until 1865. Uh, now, Milton was not a native Floridian. He was actually born in Georgia in 1807, became a lawyer, worked in Alabama, Georgia, New Orleans, uh, had spent some time in Florida serving with the Georgia militia during the Indian Wars. And then in the 1840s, he finally made Mariana in Jackson County his permanent home in 1846. But Milton was known long before he ever came to Florida as a brilliant orator and was a bit of a firebrand. He was an ardent states' rights advocate. So in the 1850s especially, this was a very raucous time for American politics, especially in the South, and Florida being a big part of that scene. And when Milton came to Florida, he sort of jumped right into the uh, political situation in Tallahassee. He was elected to the Florida State House of Representatives, served one term, and then, as I said before, was elected governor in 1860. Now, it's interesting to point out what Florida was like at that time. So according to the 1860 census, the population of the state was only 140,000 individuals, uh, 61,000 of whom were, were slaves. So the economy of Florida was uh, heavily dependent upon upon slave labor, which of course was linked to the beginnings and the origins of what would become the American Civil War. And Governor Milton was a, a slave owner himself. He had a large plantation known as Sylvania outside of Mariana. He had uh, close to 50 slaves. So he certainly believed in slavery as a means for the preservation of what he felt were the rights of the southern states and the rights specifically of the state of Florida at that time. Now, these documents are from Milton's time as governor of Florida. What sort of things are we looking at here? Well, we have in the possession of the Florida Historical Society Library a really incredible collection of documents known as the Governor's Letter Book. Now, a letter book is a compilation of transcripts of letters that were both sent and received from the governor's office during his term. So uh, we have the first half of the book. It dates from his inauguration in October of 1861 till about mid to late 1863. The second half of the journal is actually in the possession of the State Library and Archives in Tallahassee. Now, we're actually looking at the original transcripts. And, and you'll notice the pages are somewhat fragile. That's because they were involved in a fire in the mid-teens. Governor Milton's grandson, William Milton, who served as a U.S. senator in the early part of the 20th century, was in possession of this letter book. Uh, his home unfortunately caught on fire sometime around 1915, 1916. And these letters were inside of a tin box. And luckily, he was able to get them out before the, the flames engulfed the entire uh, building. But we lost a lot of original letters that were part of the, the Milton collection. So 
the letter book really is an incredible glimpse into the workings of the governor's office during uh, the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history, at least on U.S. soil, of which, as I mentioned before, Florida was a, a very big part of. So the, the nature of the letters are fairly interesting, too. So keep in mind that Florida was the third state to secede from the Union in 1861. In fact, Florida had already seceded before Governor Milton had even taken office. And a lot of these letters deal with the logistics of maintaining a war within the South. Now, Florida contributed approximately 15,000 soldiers to the Confederate cause, and that was through volunteers and also uh, through conscription. Now, that was per capita more than any other Southern state. Uh, Many of these young men, of course, never came back to the state of Florida, and it had a disastrous effect on the economy of the state. And we can see that through a number of letters. Here we're looking at a letter from mid-1863, and it says here, quote, we, the undersigned citizens of Polk County, unquote. And it goes on to explain the nature of what's happening in Polk County in 1863. This is halfway through the war. Supplies are are extremely limited because the state of Florida is sending all of its cattle and salt and other agricultural products to the armies in the field. So here you have these families and people who are trying to survive, and many of whom were subsistence farmers, trying to survive, uh, who were struggling quite a bit. And this letter, here we have 50 citizens of Polk County who signed the letter, and they're asking the governor, please, to uh, allow them to not be conscripted into Confederate service, because in 1860, there were 175 eligible voters. And of those 175 eligible voters, there were less than 50 who were in the entire county by 1863. The rest were either employed by the Confederacy somewhere else, or they had been killed in battle. So on the home front, Milton was dealing with a lot of serious domestic issues. And the Confederate government at the time wasn't providing them with uh, very many resources. There were no rail lines coming into Florida or connecting to any other southern states. Uh, So the governor was constantly pleading with Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States of America, for supplies, for military assistance. All the while, the Union forces are uh, controlling most of the major port towns in Florida. Armies are making four into the interior and the state of Florida and the citizens of Florida were were suffering quite a bit. Well, tell us what happened to Governor Milton after the Civil War. Well, I mentioned that uh, he served until 1865. Of course, the war ended in April of 1865, and Governor Milton did not see the end of the war. He was found with a gunshot wound to his head in his home in in Mariana. Now, no one can prove for certain, it's believed to have been suicide, and and most of that comes from the fact that one of the last speeches he gave to the state legislature, uh, he's quoted as saying that he would prefer death to reunion. And again, being the strong Southern man, he went down with the ship, so to speak, and again, never saw Florida's reunion union that came a few years later. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Osmer Lewis is a student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. He has this look at the history of the B-52 bomber in Orlando. The B-52 was crucial to McCoy, beginning with World War II, continuing through Vietnam, really. It was a home for the B-52, a training ground for the B-52, and uh, uh, really contributed uh, not only to our military successes, but also a great deal to the economy of Orlando. That was Dr. James Clark from the University of Central Florida who talked to me about the role of the B-52 in Orlando's history. At Orlando International Airport, on a small lot just off of Bear Road, sits a B-52 bomber 
two dedication plaques, and not much else that would separate B-52 Memorial Park from any other public park. As one of the last remnants of the now defunct McCoy Air Force Base, the park does little to remind visitors of the rich military history of McCoy Air Force Base and the city of Orlando. Bases further south and bases further west had reluctance. As, uh, as you know, in 1957 and 1972, there were crashes here in Orlando and other emergencies. And so I think that the uh, Army Air Corps and later the Air Force were looking for a place where they could be alone. And South Florida certainly did not want that. People don't realize that the first supersonic planes were tested here and then moved out to California because they were worried about crashes. Unlike Medill over in Tampa or the southern uh, Florida bases, we had lots of room for uh, airplanes to to crash. We had uh, lots of room for them to carry out bombing uh, exercises, and uh, we had extremely long runways. I think that the open spaces uh, were the primary draw here, uh, and our geographic location, just as it uh, years later would draw the space program to Cape Kennedy. Soon, growth in Central Florida led city leaders and the Air Force to negotiate a different relationship. The biggest reason was Walt Disney. In uh, the early 1960s, the city of Orlando and the Air Force signed an unusual deal to share the Air Force base. People still shake their heads at this because nobody thought this would ever happen, but basically one runway was turned over to the city of Orlando. At the time, it wasn't really uh, an inconvenience. Delta Airlines started flights uh, going in there, but most of the business remained at the Herndon Airport, downtown Orlando. Here, Dr. Clark explains what led to Orlando International Airport replacing McCoy Air Force Base. Once Disney opens uh, in uh, 1971, millions and millions of tourists begin flying in here, and what was a kind of secondary use for the airport suddenly becomes the primary use for the airport. So I think the coming of Disney, I also think the coming of the uh, space program at the Cape played a huge role. Suddenly you have companies like Martin with thousands of employees here and executives coming in and out. You have NASA officials coming in and out and using the Orlando airport rather than the uh, small airport in Titusville. And so you just have this tremendous boost in traffic. And I'm not sure the Air Force could have remain there. It's hard to keep flying uh, top secret flights when you've got millions of passengers a year coming in and out of there. After McCoy Air Force Base closed down in 1975, the city of Orlando opened B-52 Memorial Park on April 17, 1985. Although there are a few subtle references to the old base, I wanted to know why Orlando's military history was able to be so silently swept into obscure history. I think that people just don't associate Orlando with a military base. Uh, we've renamed it uh, from McCoy Air Force Base, named after a, a pilot who was killed in a crash here in Orlando, to Orlando International Airport. Although 
for millions of flyers, it must be a kind of a mystery. Their luggage tag still says MCO, uh, and they must wonder what the heck that stands for. But uh, other than that, there's really nothing to let people who fly in and out of here know that, hey, this was once a, a major defense base. I'm Osmer Lewis, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida, and you are listening to Florida Frontiers. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen to Florida Frontiers anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or catch us as a podcast. Don't miss our television series version of Florida Frontiers on your local PBS affiliate. You can also watch archived editions of the program at myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook as well at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.